Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. Donald Trump, from the very beginning, was nothing short of an opportunist whose only desire was political power for himself. And if you couldn't see that in 16, you weren't watching. Even from the silliness of how big his inaugural crowd was, you know, it hurt his feelings. And so he's going to lie about it. I mean, how could you not see how dangerous that was from the very beginning? I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers about choices they confront when failure is not an option. My guest today is former U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who represented North Dakota from 2013 to 2019. She was hailed as one of the only Democrats in the Senate representing a state that voted overwhelmingly for President Trump. Now, she helps lead the One Country Project, an organization dedicated to reopening dialogue with rural communities, advancing opportunities for rural Americans, and I'm probably a little off script here, helping stem the Republican takeover of of these areas. Senator Heidkamp, I hope that last part is true. Welcome to Burn the Boats. It's absolutely true. And uh, thanks for having me, Ken. But call me Heidi. You bet. Let's start with uh, the, I guess, the opening premise. What's happening in rural America, in communities like the one you grew up in that used to vote for Democrats? You know, it's hard to put your finger on just one thing. But the thing that we're trying to fix is, for a lot of years, the focus for um, the Democratic Party was to expand their base, which used to be elderly, small business small farmers and really um, working class people. And when you look at what happens when you ignore the folks that uh, got you to the dance, um, you start losing popularity and you start losing votes in those areas. And so the, um, the Democratic base has completely flipped. And what I believe is that when you look at the policies of the Democratic Party, and polling bears this out right now, when you look at the policies of the Democratic Party, guess what? They're very popular, but Democrats aren't. And so what is it about that dynamic that needs to be fixed? And why is it critical that it be fixed? Um, There's many people in the progressive community, as you know, who would say, well, we've lost them forever. You know, they're a dwindling population. We're not going to worry about them. We've got to continue to march on towards the left of policies. And I say, look, look at what happened in Virginia. You always get, you know, the narrative after or before this last election is that Virginia is reliably blue. Virginia is not reliably blue. And the reason why it's not reliably blue is because there aren't enough votes in suburban America and urban America to make up for the erosion that's happening in rural America for Democrats. And so um, it got worse in this last election. Here's something that your listeners might be interested in. Um, uh, Glenn Youngkin defeated Terry McAuliffe by double digits in every rural county in Virginia, or nearly every rural county in Virginia. Among rural voters, Youngkin significantly outpaced Trump's vote share from 2020, defeating McAuliffe by 27 points, 
whereas Trump only defeated Biden by six points in those in those rural counties. And so what it tells you is when everybody's looking for, oh, this is about Trump. Well, what that tells you is no, it's about the Democratic brand. And it's about when when they ran somebody who wasn't a fire breathing, you know, kind of I'm going to stand with Donald Trump against democracy kind of Republican, um, they did appreciably better than uh, the former president did. And so the other dynamic that's happening is rural voters are voting at a higher percentage. The rural vote in Virginia grew by three points from 16 percent of the voting population in 2020 to 19 in 2021. So when you lose 19, you know, 19 percent of the voters at that high of a margin, you can't be successful. And that's really what we talk about in one country is why is it that Democratic policies are popular, but Democrats aren't? And why is it that that um, we have a party and and folks in our party who want to continue to ignore this rural dynamic and ignore rural outreach? I want to diagnose that a little more specifically because the the one area or the one word you didn't use in your in your description was culture. You yeah. talk about democratic policies being popular that should translate into into votes for Democrats. But something, and you did, um, you did comment on the the brand issues that the Democratic Party has. How does that intersect with culture and uh, our inability to break through with popular policies? Well, I think it's huge. I think the the cultural that the the Democratic Party is not identified with its its policies. It's identified as you know uh, transgender bathrooms. You know. Uh, 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 defund the police, uh, critical race theory, all things that people on the right have attempted and been successful in those attempts of scaring people in rural America, partly driven, I think, by uh, the access to news, whether it's Facebook or whether it's uh, Fox News, the constant hum of, you know, these things are going to hurt who we are as Americans. Plus, you know, there's we're, we're in transition. Um, in terms of who we are as Americans. You know, we, we have been a reliably white uh, majority country for years. That's not going to be true. A phrase that I'm not particularly fond of, but is descriptive, we are going to be a majority minority country. And I think that's a transition that uh, makes people uncertain. It says, okay, what are the priorities going to be? And I would I would say we haven't done a good job defending some of the policies or some of the cultural issues that uh, we we have concern about um, things like uh, equality and equal opportunity for people in the in the gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, queer community. I mean, I don't know any decent America who thinks people should be discriminated against regardless of what their sexual orientation is. And there will be some in rural America, but they're not the majority in rural America. Um, Part of this is also um, when you look at the issue of choice and abortion, um, many people in rural America are pro-choice, but they aren't radically pro-choice. And so when you talk about what are the restrictions and, and they hear you know, maybe people on the far left saying there should be no restrictions. They that's not a position that they can abide. They don't want to get involved in other people's business. But by the same token, there's a line that they'll draw. Gun rights is another huge cultural issue 
Although when you look at it, universal background checks have been supported by a majority of rural Americans. And so I think it's the Democrats' unwillingness to explain and talk about these cultural issues to really engage with voters on what those choices are. Um, I think that that's led to an erosion of uh, support for the Democratic brand, but also it's led to a labeling and a branding of the Democratic Party that's not fair. Um, and so if Democrats aren't willing to engage with rural voters on these issues, we won't be successful. Um, Ken, I have a friend, uh, Sister Simone, who uh, famously started the nuns on the bus. She, One country, the project that uh, you and I have been talking about, which is our C4 that is trying to introduce rural Americans to uh, the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party to rural Americans. Sister Simone um, is from Santa Barbara, some major city in California. And she kind of intimated to us that, look, you know, I don't really, I've not spent a lot of time in rural America. So she got on the road and she was able to convene uh, groups of rural citizens, I think in part because she represented the faith-based community. And she talked about things like food insecurity, and she talked about things that she cares deeply about. And a lot of listening was done. And she wrote a report, important report. We helped her publicize it. Um, these are the things that need to be done, that dialogue. And will it be hard? Absolutely. Will there be people who say there's no way you're the devil incarnate if you wear the Democratic label? Sure, there will be. But that's not everybody in rural America. And if we can simply move these numbers 10%, 15%, that's not a lot of people. If we can simply move these numbers, those percent, it will have a huge electoral difference, but I think it will go towards creating one political, um, you know, one country that, that can function politically, not always agreeing, but function. And what we're seeing right now is dysfunction and the lack of the ability to govern. So you're not talking about, I just want to get real here, you're not talking about winning rural America. No. You're talking, okay. <laughs> You're talking about moving the needle enough so that um, in another, you know, McAuliffe-Yunkin contest, if the Democratic candidate can can rack up the numbers in the, the urban areas, it'll be enough to overcome the deficit, uh, less of a deficit in the rural areas. Yeah, but but I also am talking about a governable America. And when you have people you know, uh, facing off, whether it's on race or religion or ethnicity or sexual orientation, and you have one side or the other, we have that in regionally in this country. We talk about red states and blue states. You know, Obama famously said, but we're the United States. Well, we're really not the United States. We have people who are seriously talking about secession. Um, and it's not just on the right side, it's on the left, you know, let them go. You know, we, we want our own country. We want to be able to, you know, only live with people who agree with us as opposed to live in a country where we can still have a civil discourse about differences and about important issues and come to some kind of conclusion. Ken, I used to, I used to use an, an analogy. I said, you know, in small town North Dakota, there was always a table. It's getting less and less, but there was always a table of, you know, coffee drinkers. They get together and they debate politics or football or, you know, 
what should happen with the school vote that week. And and I said, you know, there'd be Democrats and Republicans at that table, not as many Democrats, but they would debate the issues and, and they would do it civilly. And I said, you know what? A lot of times those, those dialogues were heated and strongly held beliefs were expressed. But I said, they figured out a way to get the Christmas lights up in on the, the town Christmas tree and fix the church roof and, you know, put a new floor at the VFW hall. That's who we were. We were not so focused on national Democrat versus Republican politics. And now it's become sport almost. And and we've got to get back to community values. We've got to get back to kind of shared common uh, uh, humanitarian values in our communities if we're going to survive as a country. I want to talk a little bit more about the nationalization of our politics and what it says about who we've become. You talked about LGBTQ plus issues and CRT and just how effectively the Republican Party has has weaponized those things and made fear or the inducement of fear their M.O., what does it say to you about your neighbors that that is so effective, that CRT, just the invocation of it, makes people so afraid in non-diverse communities or in you know Virginia, as we saw in the latest election, uh, that they're willing to vote against their own interests, against a party whose policies they broadly support uh, because they're afraid of, in this case, a conversation about race? I think this comes down to um, respect and blame. You know, these are our values. Um, we believe that the United States of America is the greatest country on the face of the earth. And we have now been told that we're teaching people to be ashamed to be an American. So when you say critical race theory, and what people who have kind of created this dialogue about the past sins of racism and slavery and genocide for Native Americans. And we need to understand why it is that we have kind of this subculture. And, you know, I'm a big believer in generational trauma. And so all of that kind of fits in in this kind of intellectual wrap. But what rural America and what people who are critical of this here is this is once again blaming us as Americans for somebody else's problems, for somebody else's challenges. And I got challenged on this, you know, uh, a couple months ago at an event that I was doing with some students. And I said, when you talk about this stuff, what people hear is, you know, the, the guy who's working, you know, building bobcats in Bismarck, North Dakota, when he hears about white privilege, what he hears is that he's gotten something that he didn't earn. Now, there may be people on the left who believe that, but when you're telling him, yeah, you go to work hard every day, you put food on the table for your family, you are, you know, working shifts and, you know, 60 hours a week and, you know, barely making ends meet, and you've really got it made. You know, and what he says is, look, I have nothing to do with your problems. I'm just trying to make a living for myself and you're criticizing me. And so that's one of the kind of dialogue pieces that gets missed. It's not about criticism of people who today are Americans who, you know, are going to work every day. It's about understanding this original sin of the country, which is slavery and genocide for Native Americans, and how that is continuing to affect us today in terms of our ability to move economically and move together as a country. And so if somebody were hearing what I just said in rural America, 
you might be able to get at least half the audience to say, oh, well, what is this then? What are you trying to teach people? And then if you hear, if whoever is talking about this hears back from these folks, look, I don't like being blamed for all these problems. I I mean, I'm just living my life. Why is it my fault? And that's the piece that's getting missed here, the blame piece, the respect piece. You don't respect what I do. You're blaming me for all the ills of this country because I'm white. And that is leading to a lot of unrest and pretty fertile area for mining for people who want to continue to divide this country. Um, People like the former president, people like white supremacists. But in today's media ecosystem, do Democrats really have a shot at winning this argument, given that the Republican argument can fit on a bumper sticker, ban CRT or whatever, and the Democratic argument – as your answer just provide evidence of, is nuanced. And it requires some historical understanding. It requires sensitivity. It requires empathy. It requires oftentimes, and I experienced this myself, an hour-long conversation in the VFW hall. And then people start to come around. How does that compete, though, with the ability to put hate on a bumper sticker? You know what? It's hard work. No one should deny that. And when we take shortcuts in this country and live by bumper sticker— It'll be the beginning of the end of this country when we start living by bumper sticker. I don't know how you grew up, but my dad was a World War II vet. Uh, probably it was your grandpa, in your case, who was a World War II vet. And, you know, when he came back from Japan, I mean, and we would say things that were bumper sticker-like at the dinner table. He would challenge us. He would, I mean, he read the paper. He thought about these issues. He thought about why people in other countries could succumb to fascism. He thought about, you know, what was happening in communist Russia that led to, you know, the willingness of people to accept that autocracy, that dictatorship, that communism in their in their communities and in their country. And and he would challenge us to think about that motivation. Where is that today? Where is that level of teaching um, that was so critical? And and to me, we've taken shortcuts. We the Democrats' response is let's develop our own bumper sticker. Well, that's not really what we need to do. We need we aren't going to convince everybody, but we need to have those hour-long conversations at the VFW. And will you motivate one or two people to think differently? Probably. Is that hard work? Probably. But if we have a whole army of people out there who are willing to have those conversations, then you can change enough hearts and minds that you can create a more critical mass of people who are willing to listen to arguments about a number of other things. But when we live by bumper stickers, we are in big trouble in this country. Can you talk a bit about the Mantador VFW (laughs) and your dad? Because I think that really is part of the answer when you ask, where is that today? I mean, it's in communities like that. Um, I think part of the answer to that question is we've lost a lot of those. You know, everyone turns to Facebook and their own insular information bubble for answers, and they're not challenged like your dad challenged you at the dinner table. But talk about how important the VFW was to building that that sense of community and, and cross-cultural communication in a, in a community as small as Mantador. Well, there were really three institutions that I talk about growing up. One was the school, and everybody Everybody was engaged. Everybody had big families, you know. So first off, you know, you you could have a kid in every grade in Manador, 
right? All eight grades. We never had a high school in Mounder, just the first eight years. And so the community was heavily involved in funding and, you know, volunteering and doing whatever they could to keep their little community school going. Built a brand new school when I was in uh, second grade. Um, so there was the school, there was the VFW, and there was the uh, St. Peter and Paul's Catholic Church. And those were the three institutions, the three pillars of the community. And that's how the community worked together and addressed challenges. The VFW has an interesting story. My dad um, came back and uh, the uh, other vets uh, in the area, you know, obviously could have joined the American Legion over in Hankinson, which was about 10 miles away. And um, my dad said, no, I think we should have a VFW chapter in Manador. And, you know, they applied for, for a post and were denied because they thought they were too small. Well, guess what? They eventually got it. And it was a constant source of pride for my dad. Uh, my dad was the commander of the VFW for years, um, helped build the VFW. Later, a guy named Brad Hipmonic, who is a guy I went to high school with, one of my best pals, took it to the next level. Um, and just last year, the VFW in Manador, North Dakota, which is now a community of 50 people, just did a major renovation that the entire community donated money for so that we could put in a new floor and we could make sure that our vets were honored on the wall. And we were honoring those uh, Iraq and Afghanistan war vets um, and continuing the tradition of respect and honor for our VFW. Um, and it's become the community center the VFW has. And so that's the, the rural world that I grew up in. And it continues to this day. Are people as open about talking about politics? Um, probably not. I think that's one thing Donald Trump did do is he made the dialogue so much coarser. Um, you know, it used to be joking, right? Oh, yeah, you know, you're you're for the big, big spending Democrats. And, you know, the other people would say, well, you're for the heartless Republicans who don't care about, you know, children getting uh, hot lunches. And, you know, that was the level of the d discourse. But at the end of the day, the big fight was between the Packers and the Vikings fans, right? And now people just don't even engage because the rancor and the uh, lack of civility is so high and people just are walking away. Even people who could be persuaded or people who, who I think are more open-minded aren't even engaging because they look at it and it is so ugly. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, 
We explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. So tell us about One Country Project and your attempts to begin to to fix that. Well, it kind of started with the fact that national money that came in at the end of the campaign. Um, And, you, you know, number one, at the end of the campaign, it's hard to spend it. But number two, it's really hard in a state like North Dakota to spend you know, that level of, of contributions. And I thought about, I'm a former attorney general of North Dakota, and as attorneys general throughout the country have a responsibility to monitor nonprofits and make sure that donations are deployed and used um, consistent with the intent of the, the donor. And so I thought a lot about what was the donor's intent when they gave me that money. And I thought it was to win elections and to win elections in places like North Dakota. So I said the way I can honor the donors and actually help maybe heal some of the challenges of this country is try and address not all these other divisions that are being addressed, but this regional division, this urban rural division. And so I, along with Joe Donnelly, who saw this same dynamic in Indiana, um, uh, formed one country. And, And the first goal was to sound the alarm within the Democratic Party, mainly, that this is not good for the country, it's not good for the party to ignore rural America. Um, I think this is a lesson that we learn after elections like what we went through in Virginia and then quickly forget because it's hard work. It's hard work getting out there. Um, And so um, we have done a lot of research. We have done a lot of polling. And I would encourage anyone who uh, is interested in this to go out and look at our website, onecountryproject.com. And you will see polling, you will see analysis on what it means to lose rural America at the same levels. And then it was to, okay, what are good policies for rural America that we can promote? And then it is recommending strategies and paying attention to challenges, looking at rural America differently, uh, not in terms of what they want, because what rural Americans want is the same thing urban Americans want. They want good education for their kids. They want to retire with dignity. They want good quality health care. They want good quality schools. What kind of America we want to live in doesn't vary by Democrats or Republicans, but yet how we get there does change urban to rural. We just completed a uh, rural summit. Uh, anyone who is interested, this is the dialogue was fascinating, especially in healthcare. We did a future of work in rural America. What does that look like? How do we retain um, more population? So, so we operate um, a little bit like a rural think tank, pulling together people and ideas, um, and then you know basically continuing to insist that rural America have a role in the Democratic Party. And that's been a little more challenging than the other the other pieces of this. I would imagine, uh, given just how focused um, on, well, I'll just say non-rural areas, uh, current strategy seems to be. But if Virginia taught us anything, and if the swing in rural America is teaching us anything, is that that's not enough. I, I'd like to... Um, probe a little deeper into the the policy and strategy 
piece of of the one country project and get a sense from you how important candidate selection is to communicating those policies and implementing those strategies. Because as you said, none of it matters at all if you can't get into that VFW and have those conversations. I mean, the 30-second ad or the bumper sticker isn't going to do it. How tough has it been finding candidates who can communicate these values? I am always amazed that people like you are willing to step up, who believe in this country, who have a history of service, who know what the odds are and still are willing to put their name forward in the interest of the the people of this country. And so I would say that we do a pretty good job in North Dakota. We have done a pretty good job recruiting good candidates. We just put a 500-pound rock on their back called the Democratic label and ask them to run uphill with no resources and no help. (laughs) And so it's going to get harder to recruit good candidates. But the one thing I, I would tell you is the quality of the candidates hasn't been the problem as much as the burden of the label. And there are people who, if they walked in and said, I'm an independent, people would sit down and listen to them. You'd see them nod their head. They'd say, yep, you know, I agree with you. And a lot of what they would be talking about would be Democratic values, Democratic Party values. And and people would walk away saying, yeah, I really like that young man. You know, he wore a uniform or, you know, he he's come back or built a small business or whatever it is. Uh, that woman, she's doing a great job chairing the school board and and uh, working on the farm and, you know, whatever it is, you know, they know if they know you, that's a huge part. And they don't have to know you personally, but they have to know that you know them. And it's always it's always helpful if you're of them or from them. Um, but what we do is we put an impossibility on these great candidates by saying, now you're going to run as a Democrat and the dialogue is going to be about defunding the police. You know, I was just in South Dakota doing a talk to um, the Democrats in the district that just is to the south of where I grew up. I grew up about 10 miles from the South Dakota border. And I said, look, we cannot burden our rural candidates with things like defund the police or, you know, um, we don't care what parents think about uh, what's going on, being taught in the schools or whatever kind of is the the more explosive bumper sticker, if we're going to use that phrase of, of the day. And this young woman came up to me afterwards and told me I didn't know what I was talking about. Um, And this was the path forward to be, you know, to run from the extreme left. And I just looked at her like, what what world do you live in? And she wanted to be a candidate. And I'm like, you know, good luck. You're just not going to be successful until you figure out how to not I'm not saying how to how to talk about law enforcement reform in a way that gets people to listen. You know, the minute you say defund the police, people are done. They're like, no, I'm not going there. You're crazy. But if you say, look, we need a justice system that is more fair um, in this country, you know, whether that is investigating uh, missing Native children the same way you investigate missing white children, whether that is deploying law enforcement resources, making sure communities are safe on an Indian reservation or in a small town in North Dakota, um, the same way they would be safe in Fargo or in Grand Forks. And and we have this internal debate among Democrats 
And we've engaged in that for the last year. And guess what? It's not a successful strategy. The contrast cannot be between the extreme left and conservative or moderate Democrats. The contrast has to be between Democrats and Republicans. And somehow along the way, this has gotten lost in this uh, internal uh, party dialogue. Given how effectively, though, the Republican Party has defined the Democratic brand and how much of a a burden that brand has become in areas of the country uh, like like yours, do you have any sympathy for progressives who choose to shed it and run as as independents? Is that a path that you think has promise, or does that just undermine? Um, progressivism and, and the Democratic Party long term? Well, I mean, it's hard to know. I think everybody needs to find a path forward. And I think there's state parties that talk about rebranding their state party so it is affiliated but not recognized as part of the National Democratic Party because hmm. it just is getting so hard. But to, like Evan McMullen in Utah, I mean, this yeah. is a case in point. This is not hypothetical. A Democrat can't win in Utah. Let's just be real. Um, but he's not a Democrat. You're right. But but he's not a Republican either. Yeah. And with where our politics are, that's enough um, for a lot of people, given how great a threat the Republican Party has become to American democracy. Well, and that's the other thing is, how did Biden win? Biden won because people were afraid of Republican leadership under Donald Trump. I mean, he didn't win by much. But the missing ingredient in the Virginia race was really Trump. You know, Trump was asked not to come. Of course, wanted to take a victory lap after Youngkin won. I mean, Youngkin won because he didn't stand next to Trump. And so we know they have a labeling problem. They have these incredibly incendiary uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bobbitt and, and or however you pronounce her last name. I mean, these are horrible examples of Republicans and they're going to get labeled if they don't deal with these folks, they're going to get labeled as the party of those people. And this is why millennials are saying, look, if my only choice is is this or that, and it's the radical on both sides or that's the extreme on both sides, if that's my only choice, I'm opting out. And so the fastest growing party in America is independence. More and more people are, are registering as independents. And millennials and, and certainly the, the following generations are not necessarily party loyal. And that's Democrats and Republicans. But for the next few cycles, at least, and probably the next 10 years, we cannot count on millennials or my my eldest daughter's generation to save us. And I think the existential fear for a lot of us who are steeped in this is that we got to get through the next 10 years until the next generation takes the torch and America comes back to its senses. And I'm not sure I share your optimism reflecting on Virginia that uh, that Trump is irrelevant or that Trumpism is uh, in decline. Yeah, I didn't say he was irrelevant. Clearly, he has motivated a new base of Republicans to vote Republican. You know, people used to talk about Reagan Democrats. You know what Reagan Democrats are? They're Republicans. Right. So so now he has has generated enthusiasm among people who have never voted before. Working class people who say that guy speaks to me and they're continuing to vote in this cycle and they're voting Republican. But my point is that 
had Trump showed up and reminded a lot of the other voters, a lot of the other people in Virginia, that he is the clear and present threat to our democracy, there would have been greater motivation for them to get out and vote. And so I still believe that Donald Trump in the midterms will be a negative influence in places that um, we need to win in order to maintain majority control in both the House and the Senate. And you think that holds even in uh, in places like Ohio and North Dakota? Yeah, not North Dakota. Okay. Mm-mm. No, but I think in states that are, you know, within 10 points, um, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, Florida, um, uh, Georgia, uh, Arizona, those are the states you need, North Carolina, South Carolina. Mississippi, these southern states that are that are now seeing demographic trends that would argue that the populism and progressivism of the Great Plains has moved south. You know, I once upon a time believed that that Iowa could become reliably blue. I'm not sure I'm there anymore. But I will tell you, I think that that Mississippi is a place that could become, you know, a potential win for Democrats. Um, even in, in Alabama, we do a lot of work at One Country in Alabama. Um, we have a young man who's on our board, Anthony Daniels, who's just fabulous, absolutely fabulous. He's the House Minority Leader. And, you know, he has strategically done some really great work um, in the state of Alabama to um, begin to soften the blow. And understand this, Alabama is much bluer than North Dakota. And people forget that, you know, they think, oh, it's the deep south, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, guess what? It used to vote Democratic, could vote Democrat again. And to me, giving up on places like Alabama, giving up on places like Mississippi is the wrong strategy for the Democratic Party. I agree with you 100% there. Um, Did I hear you correctly say that populism has moved south? Yep. Can you talk about, because you are, you're populist adjacent. I've heard you say that Donald Trump was the one who gave populism a bad name. Yep. Um, educate us. Well, to me, populism is nothing more than um, uh, an ability. So, so let me let me tell folks that are listening um, the North Dakota history, populism. And, and one thing that Byron Dorgan, former senator from North Dakota, would tell you, he's a populist. What does that mean? That means when the railroad is um, taking advantage of uh, the the people who grow the grain, people who manufacture things, we expect the government and the people to rise up and find a solution on their own. That's why historically we have a state-run bank because we couldn't get the bankers in Minneapolis to fund our development. That's why we have a state mill and elevator because we couldn't trust the the grain industry to... um, Uh, give our farmers a fair shake. We are a hugely populist state. And by that, I mean, you know, kind of the old Bob LaFollette populism, you know, the the kind of working class go after it. Um, uh, Working people deserve to uh, um, have a voice. Working people deserve to band together to uh, fix America's problems and to expect that the government's going to respond. what Donald Trump did with populism is he ignited it on them versus us. And the them was not the big grain companies. That was not the big, um, you know, banks that would in 2008 crash the economy, uh, come back and get huge tax breaks and become even more profitable than what they were before. If you want to see 
an example of where populism needed to reign. It's in what happened with uh, the 2008 crash. But yet that didn't happen. And Donald Trump did nothing to bring back an attitude or, or fix that problem. You know, he, he would talk about it. You're getting taken advantage of. But the them or the other that he pointed to were other fellow Americans. You know, people who live in cities, people who live in the suburbs, people who, who aren't, don't have your color skin or believe have the same faith as you. Those are the enemies. That's his brand of populism. Our brand is, look, take a look at who's really taking advantage of working people in this country um, by not paying them an adequate wage, by not giving them an opportunity to um, go to college because you've priced it out of the market, by burdening them with uh, so much college debt they can't possibly make ends meet, by not providing quality health care wherever you live. And take a look at who the, what the really uh, important issues are. Instead, what he did was he ignited the fear of the other and the other uh, the fight wasn't against the institutions that take advantage of working people. The fight was against other Americans. Did you have any sense in 2016 and early 2017 just how dangerous of a president yep. Donald Trump would be? I'm asking you specifically because yeah. you were one of the I mean, small, small number of Democrats that was considered for a cabinet position in the Trump administration. This is a little bit of an inside baseball question, but, you know, how did that meeting in the Oval Office go? And um, what was your what was your it thinking? It was in Trump Tower. It, oh, it was even better. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a, one of the the most dangerous people in politics isn't necessarily the ideologue. It's not the Mike Lee who, you know, well, or even the Rand Paul. They have a philosophy. I don't share it. They have a, a set of core beliefs. Donald Trump, from the very beginning, was nothing short of an opportunist whose only desire was political power for himself. And if you, didn't, if you couldn't see that in 16, you weren't watching. And if you couldn't see it in the early days of governing, even from the, the silliness of how big his inaugural crowd was, you know, it hurt his feelings. And so he's going to lie about it. I mean, how could you not see how dangerous that was from the very beginning? And guess who saw it? Who saw it in ways that made a huge difference? It was women. It was women who took to the streets the day after the inaugural saying he's dangerous. It was women who voted him out in 2020. And, you know, this is an interesting dynamic because we talk about the divisions in politics. The gender disparity in politics for me is fascinating. And Josh Hawley, you know, who replaced a fabulous senator in Claire McCaskill, that's one of the great tragedies, in my opinion, is that Claire is not still in the Senate. And she's replaced by a, by a very dangerous, um, I'm not going to say he's not smart, I mean, a very dangerous individual who now thinks it is, I, I love this, it's feminists who are to blame for men watching video games and porn. And I'm like, how does this fit with your macho image that men could be persuaded? I mean, number one, there aren't that many feminists waving, you know, uh, flag wavers right now in America anyway, but it's somehow feminists who have caused problems in America? Give me a break. And it just tells you 
how how effective they think they can be by dividing this country. And and to me, the next iteration of the Trump opportunistic politician, which I think Josh Hawley is equally opportunistic. I don't think he has a set of core values. He keeps coming up on this show. Um, I don't think that's an accident. We've got uh, yeah. Lucas Kunz, who's running for Senate in Missouri in a couple of weeks, so that'll that'll be fun. Um, yeah, no, and 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 I just think I just think he is. Uh, I mean, I I look at Tom Cotton. You know, guess what? He has an ideology, and I don't share it, but he has a predictability to him. And I think Josh Hawley is is the kind of politician puts his finger in the air and says, which way is the wind blowing that I can capture the wave? Um, and then he jumps on it. And he stepped into the thing on January 6th to rise above and create an opportunity for himself, whether he'll be punished for that. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure that your friend who's going to be on um, sees this uphill battle in Missouri. Um, but I will tell you nationally, that somebody like the next generation of Trump opportunistic politician is going to emerge and they'll be smarter than Donald Trump. You made an observation. It, it was a while back, but it stuck with me about your colleagues in the Senate and that the ones who had a pretty good life before they came to the Senate <laughs> seemed to be a little more grounded when they got there. I, complete that thought for me. Well, I mean, I always say, people say, how do you fix the Senate? And I used to say, forget about term limits, only elect the terminally ill. And people look at me and I go, because their motivation's different. When you're motivated by self-interest, as opposed to the interest of the people. And people who get up in the morning and look in the mirror and see a president of the United States, they aren't doing the people's business, they're doing their own business. And so... There are people who will gauge every issue from a political lens as opposed to what's the right thing to do for the country. And then there are many, many, many United States senators who I think fall in the category of, I want to do the right thing for the country. I want the country to move forward. They're not necessarily self-interested. But the people who, who have the ability to walk away, to say, I'm going to risk something um, uh, for what I believe is a core belief. We don't have that level, uh, enough of those people in the United States Senate anymore. And, you know, when the job becomes more important than, than the people and more important than this country, we're in, in dangerous territory. Well, Senator, it's been great having you. We end every episode of Burn the Boats with the same question, what is the bravest decision you've ever been a part of? You know, it, a lot of people would say it would be the vote against Kavanaugh. I think it, it, the bravest decision I've ever been part of is, is to get in the arena. You know, in 2012, after I've, I left politics, had a great life, people came to me and said, would you take this on? And no one thought I could win. Um, probably me included. But I thought, you know, the worst thing that happens is I've engaged in a dialogue. I've gone out and seen some old friends across the state of North Dakota. That's not a bad use of a year of my life. But getting engaged and involved, I think that initial step might be the single most courageous thing I've ever done because it's a tough world out there. Let me tell you, um, people always ask me, 
how do you, I mean, how do you deal with all these people coming at you? And, you know, my life's been threatened. And, you know, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, we can put our heads down at the end of our life and say, I tried and, and occasionally I succeeded. But the one thing I can't live with is not trying. Well, we're certainly all better for your having tried. Um, and I have very high hopes for the One Country Project. We'll be, we'll be following it and would love to have you back. Well, Ken, it, it's great. We met in Ohio. I don't know if you're going to tell your <laughs> listeners how we met, but it, you, are, you are yet an, another example of somebody who you know, put on a uniform, served our country, and then when you took off that uniform, your service didn't stop. And so keep at it. Keep doing what you do. Keep uh, speaking truth to power. Um, if I can recommend just one thing, yeah. and maybe you guys can find it, um, The Atlantic, a, a friend of mine, Annie Applebaum, who writes for The Atlantic, wrote an interesting article about um, East German dissenters. And she's an expert in post-Soviet um, Eastern Europe. Um, and she was interviewing people who who stood up to Nazis and who stood up to communism and, and risked everything risked everything. They risked their livelihood. They risked their lives. They risked their families um, to do the right thing. And the question she asks is, when politicians in the United States are called to stand up against autocracy and stand up against uh, insurrection, what do they risk in our country? They risk not getting reelected. And the stakes are so low compared to people who have been freedom and democracy fighters for a long, long time. We need to engage and have that level of heroism and courage in our politicians to do the right thing and be willing to sacrifice not their lives and not their livelihoods and not their families, but simply their position in the United States Senate or in the Congress. That's not asking too much. It's not. It's not. Well, thanks again. We'll make sure to, I remember reading that article, but we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, Great talking to you. Okay. We'll talk to you later, Ken. Thanks again to Senator Heitkamp for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at at Heidi Heitkamp. For more information about One Country Project, visit their website, onecountryproject.com, or follow them on Twitter at at onecountry. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. 
Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.